This morning, Pastor Dave is going to preach out of the book of James, James chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. So I'll go ahead and read those uh, verses for us this morning. James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is a sin. James 4. Thanks, John. Well, hey, good morning. Welcome back to our sermon series we've been in for a few weeks now called Lessons from Sabbatical. For those of you who don't know, I took a sabbatical this summer for the first time in my pastoral career, and it was very strange. It was an incredible blessing, but it's a strange time. And so I'm talking about lessons that God taught me on sabbatical that I felt like he gave me to pass along to all of you as well. And the lesson I'm going to be talking about today was an unexpected lesson. Um, I mean, some of the things that I learned on sabbatical, I thought, well, yeah, that's kind of what I hear other pastors learn. But there's one that nobody ever told me about. Um, See, because one of the things that happens on sabbatical, when you unplug from everything that you're used to doing, especially surrounding your work, is you kind of get a glimpse of what it would be like if you died. Right? I mean, it's not a vacation, so they can't just kind of patch things together. But it's like you kind of get a glimpse of how your life would be replaced with other people. Um, and not that people wouldn't be sad. Of course they'd be sad. And not that they wouldn't, you know, um, miss you. Of course they would. But it's a long enough period of time where they have to put different things in place to move on with life. And that's exactly what would happen if you died. And so this lesson is an incredibly important lesson for pastors because it says to the pastor, well, you're replaceable. Like, the whole world doesn't ride on you. The church isn't totally dependent on you. It's a very important lesson for pastors, but it's also an important lesson for churches because it says to the church, like, hey, this church doesn't rise on one person's shoulders unless his name is Jesus. Amen? Like, you got to learn that lesson. That's a really important lesson to learn. And it forces the pastor to really grapple with their own mortality, their own frailty, their own sense of, like, where do I get all my identity and, and you know, where, what am I doing with my short little life? And kind of evaluating some of those big things and those, asking those big existential questions. And this, I found, was one of the main reasons why pastors resist sabbatical. I always used to think, why would a pastor not want sabbatical? All that time to fish and just, you know, hang out. And, you know, but there's some reasons why you don't take a sabbatical. And one of them is facing these bigger questions that are not necessarily fun to wrestle with. But as we see in James today, it's super important that we look at these big questions and the realities they point us to. And while I was on sabbatical, I discovered this beautiful song, and I really feel like God gave it to me as a gift. We sang it, All Glory Be to Christ. I'd never heard the song before, um, but I just ran into it worshiping one day, and it just it got stuck in my brain, and I literally played it multiple times a day. And as you could hear, that song literally says our text from James almost verbatim. So it gave me daily opportunity to just meditate on what's really important about life, right? So I call it kind of my ultimate simplification song. Like, if you strip everything away, what is your life really about? The glory of Christ, right? It's just that simple. 
And so the way I would sum up both the song and our text today is the lesson that I have for us. And the lesson is this. Your short, frail life is in God's hands. That's the lesson. Your short, frail life is in God's hands. And James goes as far as to say that living like that isn't true, like your life isn't short or frail or in God, God's hands, is sin. It's arrogance and sin. And so we're going to look at these three big ideas about your life together for a few minutes. Your life is short, your life is frail, and it's in God's hands. All right, so first of all, here we go. Your life is short. This side of the resurrection, your life is very, very, very short. How short, you might ask? Well, James uses this searing metaphor that's impossible to shake, and the song repeats it almost word for word. It's like a mist. The last time I preached this sermon, I had a spray bottle. I kept spraying. It was annoying, but people remembered it. I I left that out this time. Um, That was the last time I preached this passage. I've never preached this sermon before. Uh, but, But it's like a mist. It's like a vapor in the morning. You know, you wake up and there's mist in the air, and then the sun comes out and it's gone. It's that short. And we really don't like this as Americans, do we? Now, we, we spend billions of dollars every year on what I would call the immortality business, beauty products and procedures to make us look much younger than we really are. And there's nothing really wrong with trying to make yourself look a little younger, I don't think, as long as you admit that you're trying to fight against this reality that your life is very, very, very short. And worse yet, we have no control of that. We have no control over our lives. That's what James is saying. He's saying your lives are short and you're not in control. So stop boasting and pretending like that's not true. Stop boasting and pretending like you are in control. And boy, does that rub us the wrong way as Americans, doesn't it? I mean, I don't even like hearing that. And I I wrote this all week and I still don't like hearing that. What would we rather hear? Well, let's try something else. How about the words of William Ernest Henley in the famous poem Invictus, which means unconquerable. Listen to this. This is a little more like it. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloodied but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate How charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. We say, oh, yeah, that's more like it. Now that's the American dream right there. Proud, unflinching, unconquerable, even in the face of death. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That's what it's all about. And yet it's interesting, the poet still died. Just dead as a doornail. Unable to captain the ship of his soul out of that storm that comes for all of us. Unable to direct his fate into a different area to escape it. Inspiring? Sure. True? Nope. James is not as fun to read, is it? But he's telling us the truth. Your life, friends, is short You're not in control. You're not God. It turns out you're not the master of your fate or the captain of your soul. Sorry. Listen to the words of the song we just sang. To you who boast tomorrow's gain, tell me 
What is your life? A mist. The vanishes at dawn. All glory be to Christ. Now, what does this mean for us? What did this mean for me as I discovered this lesson on sabbaticals? I just really grappled with my own mortality. There's a lot of different realities we could glean from this, but there are two big ones that I walked away with that I'm going to share with you. Number one, because your life is short, put the vast majority of your time and resources into that which is most important. The vast majority. And, you know, as you begin to look at your life, it won't take you long to, try to figure out that, hey, the things that are really going to matter in your life are, number one, your relationship with God and your relationship with others. There's not a lot left after that, right? Um, Jenny was reading this book at the same time over sabbatical. I don't even know which one it was, but it had this exercise, and it says, picture yourself as 90 years old, right? And some of us, many of us won't live to be 90, but 90-year-olds have a lot of wisdom, and most of their friends have already died, so if you ask a 90-year-old, like, what's really important about life, they usually have some really good wisdom to, to, to give you. So it says, picture yourself at 90 years old, and, and then ask yourself, what would my 90-year-old self tell myself today is really important and meaningful? And then if it's not important, get rid of it. Get rid of it. And I've had several things that I've worked through, but one of the things the Lord was working on me during sabbatical, just complete transparency, was finances. And I'm kind of the financial nerd in our house, always have been. Jenny's always said, I worry more about finances than, you know, I worry enough for both of us, basically. So she doesn't have to think about it. But um, this past year, I, I started managing our Roth IRAs. We have some simple Roth IRAs that we put a little money away every year for a couple years now. We don't have much, but I just said, hey, I, I don't need somebody else to do this. I'm going to do it myself. And I told many of this, I struggled deeply with this, and I realized it was starting to take up a lot of mental real estate. Uh, and I was starting to, you know, it was just like, oh, should I sell this? Should I buy that? Maybe should I put it all in Bitcoin? You know, and it was just starting to grow, drive me crazy to the point where the Lord was just like, this is not even close to the top 10 of your values. And it's taking up this much time in your head? It's got to go. So I did. I just turned it over to another guy. Now I don't think about it ever. What is it that, what is that thing for you? What are those things for you that are just like, they're not important. Your life is way too short to spend them on those frivolous things that really don't line up with your value systems. That's the first thing. Because life is short, spend the majority of your time on that which is most important. Secondly, because your life is short, don't live for your own legacy which vanishes so quickly. Like the song says, should nothing of our efforts stand, no legacy survives, live for the glory of Christ. I feel like this is tricky for Christians, right? Because we have lots of Christian music that talks about, I want to leave a legacy. I want, I want, how will people remember me? And those can be, those can kind of masquerade as good Christian things. But I think in the end, they come back to like ourselves, self-focus. What's my name going to be? Who, how are people going to remember me? And here's, here's the big sobering truth. Give it enough time and people won't remember you. I mean, I, I, I did this project for seminary where we do a genogram, and you you got to go back into your family tree as far as you can go. I couldn't name anybody past my great-grandparents. I had to do some digging to find Mint and Jenny Sinkraven in the Netherlands. That's not even 200 years ago. Sobering truth is, give it 200 years, the vast majority of us will be totally forgotten. Very, very, very few people make it into the history books, and most of them did it not trying. They didn't set out to do that, right? So you might as well not live 
for your short, fading legacy. Seek the glory of Christ, friends. When nothing of our efforts stand, no legacy survives. Live for the glory of Christ. All glory be to Christ our King. Which brings us to the second point. As if your life is short is not sad enough, your life is also frail. And the only thing that Americans like less than being mortal is being frail and mortal. You know? Can't think of anything more frail or flimsy or fleeting than a mist. I mean, the sun comes up and it's gone. It just doesn't withstand anything. It doesn't have a fighting chance. And that's the picture James gives us of our lives. Other places in Scripture refer to us as grass or breath or dirt, if you prefer a different metaphor. But they're all pretty frail. We all have feet of clay, and it's admitting this is not super fun, but according to James, it's really, really important to do. He points us to this sober-mindedness, I think, for two reasons, or two reasons that I gleaned from this. Well, how does it help us to confess our weakness or to admit it? Well, number one, ironically, admitting our weakness to one another is the only way we build community. We talked about Andy and Katie and how great they are at building community. This is one of the things they preach over and over. But confessing our sins and our need, that's the way God makes us into a true community. Listen to this. Stanley Hauerwas, in one of his essays, tells this story of how he learned this from a woman who came to their small congregation. I love this story. He says, I'm going to read this verbatim. Every Sunday we had Eucharist, or the Lord's Supper, prayers from the congregation, and a noon meal for the neighborhood. When the usual congregation would pray, we would pray for the hungry in Ethiopia and for an end to the war in the Near East and so on. Well, this bag lady started coming to church, and she would pray things like, Lord, I have a cold, and I would really like you to cure it. Or I've just had a horrible week, and I'm depressed. Lord, would you please raise my spirits? You never hear prayers like that in most of our churches. Why? Because the last thing that Christians want to do is show one another that they're vulnerable. People go to church because they are strong. They want to reinforce the presumption that they are strong. One of the crucial issues here is how we learn to be a people dependent on one another. We must learn to confess that as a hospitable people, we need one another because we are dependent on one another. The last thing the church wants is a bunch of autonomous, free individuals. We want people who know how to express authentic need because that creates community. See, friends, I think Hauerwas is really right. I think he's on to something here. You know, we all want to be strong as individuals. That's a huge value as Americans, isn't it? Just, just our independence, it's a huge value, but it's not a value at all in the church. It's totally the opposite. I mean, we're called over and over again members of the body. I'm just got to ask you, like, how would your nose do if you cut it off and just threw it on the ground? How would your arm do as a, as a part of the body just laying there all by itself? wouldn't be flourishing. It wouldn't be like, I'm good. Yet that's, that's, what it's, that's what we're called. God has put us as individuals, as members into a body that will love us and care for us. And in this body that we call the church, we belong to and depend on one another. That's why Paul writes, you know, like, I can't say to the hand, I don't need you, and vice versa. We can't say that to one another. Have you ever tried building community with someone who their life was just perfect? We even talked about this at the, the staff prayer time this morning. I mean, you just know that person. Like, they're super nice. They're, they're super friendly. But their life is just always up. 
And you know that's not true, but they just insist on this veneer. They just insist on putting forward this illusion that everything's perfect. I call these plastic friends. You know, you just kind of like, is there anybody real inside there? You know, what's, how, come, how come you can't share anything real? They're super positive people to be around, but they're not real. And it's almost impossible to build community with them. Because so, you just can't relate, right? C.S. Lewis says in his book, The Four Loves, the typical expression of opening friendship would be something like, what? You too? I thought I was the only one. And I mean, how many of you have built a friendship on that? I have. Many times. What? You too? I thought I was the only one. And see, friends, that can't happen if we insist on the, the facade of being bulletproof. If you, if you bring your, your bulletproofness, your perfection to church, and you got to put on your mask, then everybody else around you is forced to try to do the same thing, just pretending. If you'll open up, if you'll be vulnerable, I'll give you many, many opportunities to say, what, you too? I thought I was the only one. So admitting frailty is the only way to build community. That's the first thing that admitting our weakness does. But secondly, admitting our weakness to God draws us closer to him, builds our relationship with him, and it, it alleviates stress and burden. This is a big one for us, right? Couldn't you guys use a little deduction in your stress and your burden? I mean, I could. And ironically, this really does. This, this is where our song, All Glory Be to Christ, really points us to the Lord's Supper. Look, in our weakness, you know, Christ is feeding us with his body and blood as spiritual food. The song says, who is himself our daily bread? Praise him, the Lord of love. Let living water satisfy the thirsty without price. We'll take a cup of kindness yet. All glory be to Christ. I love that. And see, if you've noticed, when we receive communion here at Life Church, we say this every single time that, hey, we are weak creatures. We don't have to remind God of that, but we remind ourselves of that because it puts us back in the right place. It reminds us that we are broken. We do have feet of clay. We are God's creatures, and we are totally dependent on him for everything we need. We're not God. He is. And that's so freeing. It alleviates tons and tons of stress and burden. And this is God's intention for us, by the way. Like, he didn't intend for us to live really burdensome, stress-filled lives. I mean, look at what Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest, he says. Jesus actually said that. And he meant that. And I think a lot of times we carry our Christianity like it's so heavy. But Jesus is like, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And why is that true? Well, it's because Jesus is doing most of the lifting. If you're ever yoked up with someone... Have you ever tried to lift something with somebody super strong? I had this friend in college could bench press like 400 pounds. And sometimes we get asked to move furniture for people. I always wanted to partner up with him, you know? Because Jeremy Cron, like there was nothing that guy couldn't lift. And so I would act like I was lifting, but I would really be like, I don't really feel much here. You know, because Cron could basically do it by himself. And that's the way it is with Jesus, right? Yeah, he, he invites us along with him on his work, in his ministry, rescuing the world. But guess what? It doesn't depend on us. He doesn't need us to accomplish his, his purposes in the world. He invites us as his friends, as his, you know, as his people along with him because it brings him great joy and it brings us joy to do that. But by all means, he doesn't need us to do it. 
This allows us to really live those lives of worry-free, stress-free that Jesus intends for us. I mean, isn't it interesting? One of the most common commands Jesus gives in the Gospels is, don't fear, don't worry, don't be afraid, over and over again. I realized on sabbatical that I was often living in direct opposition to Christ's commands. I realized I was carrying a lot of burdens that were way too heavy for me. I was weak. But Jesus never gave me many of those burdens, and in fact, he was relentlessly asking me to release them to him. I'm wondering today, what would it mean for you to admit you're frail to some people around you? How would that build community, those friendships that you desperately need? But additionally, what would it mean to do that to God, to say, I'm not God. I can't do it. I'm not inexhaustible. I have limits. How would that unload some stress and some burden onto him that he's wanting to carry? That brings us to the third point of our passage Your life isn't just short. Let's review it. So James has now said your life is short, your life is frail, and your life is in God's hands. Or the negative way of saying that is you're not in control. So your life is short. Your your short, frail life is actually in God's hands. And we would say, ouch, James, that really hurts to, to say that, to put that that way. But notice why James says that it's a sin for us to pretend like we are in control, like we're the masters of our own fate, the captains of our soul. He says it's a sin because it's just not true. God is. God's the one who's in control, and we are not. So to take our lives in our own hands is to deny God's presence in our lives. It's like a functional atheism. It's like living as if he's not real. James says that's sin, that's arrogance, that's boastfulness. But not only that, it causes us to miss out on the beautiful realities that Christ invites us into, this worry-free, stress-free life that he wants for us. See, worry says, it's all riding on me. Like, my life is all in my hands, and if I don't get it right, it's going to be a disaster. I mean, have you, any of you felt that way? I certainly have. It's all riding on me, and that just isn't the reality. It isn't all riding on you. It's riding on him. Our short, frail lives are in God's hands. And here's the thing. What's more, when we realize that our short, frail lives are not in our hands but rest securely in his good and caring hands, we, can, we cannot hold them so tightly. We don't have to clutch to them so tightly because this God is the God who specializes in rescuing short, frail lives. This God is the God that can take our short, frail lives and jump them even out, pull them even out of death itself and give them hope, give them a future beyond it. See, friends, remember, Jesus Christ came to earth. He lived the perfect life that none of us could live. He died the death that was meant for us. And the third day rose again from the dead, breaking the power of sin, Satan, and death to give our short, frail lives hope future, a promise. He's remaking them into what they were always made to be. And I think when I was, I was thinking about this, I discovered like there's a reason this seems so odd to me to think of my own mortality. And that's because we were not made to die. One of the reasons we fear thinking about it deeply is your psyche wasn't created to think of its end, right? 
You weren't made that way. You were made, in fact, to live forever. So it's very hard to wrap your mind around it. It's like a breaking of God's good design. I love how C.S. Lewis puts it in his reflections on the Psalms. He says, for we are so little reconciled to time that we're even astonished at it. You ever found this? How he's grown, we exclaim. How time flies. As though the universal form of our experience were again and again a novelty. It is, strange as if a, it is as strange as if a fish were repeatedly surprised at the very wetness of water. And that would be strange indeed, unless, of course, the fish were destined to become one day a land animal. So let's borrow Lewis's term here. Maybe you're feeling strange about that, that your life is short and frail, because it was never supposed to be. Because you were, in fact made to be a land animal. You are, in fact, made to be a creature living in a different world altogether where death is not a reality, where there are no goodbyes to your closest of friends, where there are no tears. And friends, this is the world that our Jesus is coming to remake. That's the way he intended it to be, and it all broke and fell to pieces because of sin, but that's the world that he's coming to remake. That's what our song points us to the end that we sang so beautifully. When on that day, the great I am, the faithful and the true, the lamb who was for sinners slain, is making all things new. Behold, our God shall live with us and be our steadfast light, and we shall ere his people be. All glory be to Christ. All glory be to Christ, our King. All glory be to Christ. His rule and reign will ever sing. All glory be to Christ. Friends, I don't know where this message finds you today. Maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. And I would just say this message is so critical for you to understand. Because you might feel like you're the master of your own fate. You might feel like you're the captain of your soul. But you are not. You just are not. You are frail. Your life is short. And it could end at any moment. You could walk out of here and that's your last breath. So I'm urging you today, if you do not know Christ, if your life is not safe in his hands, come to him today. There will be people up here to pray with you and invite you into his strength. You are weak, but he is strong, and he can save your life from death itself and from hell and destruction as well. Come to him. Don't wait. You don't know how short your life is. It's short. It's like a mist. And 40 years is a mist, 80 years is a mist, but you don't know how much is left. So don't wait. For the rest of you, um, I was thinking about like how to end this sermon. I was like, here's the, the ironic thing. A lot of times we try to end these sermons to really make lots of impact at the end. And I thought, you know what's made the most difference for me over sabbatical is just silently listening to the Lord, just shutting up so the Lord can talk to me. And so that's what I would like to do here for the closing moments as the worship team comes up is just to allow us a moment or two of silence where you listen for his voice. I don't know what he's calling you to do, but I'm confident the Holy Spirit will speak to you as you reflect on your short, frail life. What is he asking you to do? What kind of a response is he wanting from you today? And then would you write that down somewhere in your Bible or on a, on a piece of paper so that you remember it as you do your devotions this week or whatever and that you follow up with it? Don't let the enemy snatch that word that he gives you in this next couple of moments, all right? So we're just going to let the silence hang and then the worship team's going to close us out.